Hey guys, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Sherry, and you're listening to From the Dark Side podcast. Today's story is a case that went very cold for over 20 years. A young newlywed murdered in her own home. It appeared as a robbery gone wrong, but is that what really happened? My sources are listed in the description area. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty, and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This is episode 63, The Murder of Sherry Rasmussen. This story takes us back to 1986. Just some facts from that year. I was in kindergarten, so you know it was a long-ass time ago. There was the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster, which aired live on TV. There was the Chernobyl radiation disaster. The average monthly rent was $385. A brand new Ford Mustang was $8,000. Smoking was banned on all forms of public transportation in the U.S. Can you believe you used to be able to smoke on planes and buses? Top Gun was the highest grossing film. Mike Tyson won his first boxing title at at only 20 years old. And lastly, the biggest food trends were angel hair pasta and microwaved popcorn. Sherry Rasmussen is 29 years old. The year is 1986, and her and her husband of three months live in Van Nuys, California. This area is part of Los Angeles. So while Los Angeles in the 80s was riddled with crime, this area that they lived in wasn't so bad. It's still L.A., though. Sherry was an incredibly awesome person. She actually graduated high school at only 16 years old and was able to complete nursing school by 19 years old. That's truly incredible. So in 1986, at the age of 29, she is director of nursing at Glendale Hospital. She's pretty young to have that position, but she earned it and did a really good job. Her parents are Nils and Loretta, and she has two sisters. Nils, her father, was a dentist, and both him and her mom say Sherry was truly an angel, almost like a perfect child growing up, and she was always so serious about her education. In 1984, just two years before this story, Sherry met a man named John Rudder. He was handsome and had dark hair and just fell in love with Sherry at first sight. He had recently graduated from UCLA, and these two just hit it off. Sherry was sweet and driven. She is described as brilliant. A lot of people said the same things about John, so they're kind of like an ideal couple. In November 1985, Sherry and John married. They are three months into their marriage on February 1986. John is getting ready for work. Sherry is supposed to give a human resource type class to her nurses she supervised, but she felt like it wasn't important and didn't want to do it, but it was mandated by the hospital. So she decides, you know what, I'm taking the day off work. I'm going to lay in bed and call in sick. There's nothing wrong with doing that, by the way. So Sherry is going to stay home and chill while her husband goes to work. John had tried to convince her to go in, but she was like, eh, no. He kisses her goodbye and out the door he goes. John drops off some laundry at the cleaners that morning and then heads to work. He's sitting at his desk around 8 o'clock a.m. He works for a bit, and then around mid-morning, he decides to give Sherry a call just to see how things are going at home. He calls their house. Now, remember, this is 1986, and there are no cell phones. He calls from his desk phone to their home phone, but he doesn't get an answer. He figures she just went back to sleep. He calls at lunchtime, and there's still no answer. He's a little annoyed, but finds it strange. He calls back that afternoon. Now he's really worried. He calls her job to see if she went into work, and the secretary at the hospital said she hadn't seen her all day. 
But John continues to work. He calls back a few more times throughout the day, but Sherry never answers. He's growing more and more concerned every hour that passes. When he comes home that evening, he's surprised to see their garage doors open. Sherry never leaves the garage door open. What's weird is that her BMW is missing. So he figures she must have been out all day and she just hasn't returned, which is out of character, but the only thing he can come up with at the time. He goes inside and there in the living room lay his wife of three months, Sherry. She was in her red silk bathrobe and she was deceased. Her face was battered and there was blood everywhere. Sherry had been shot three times and beaten. This was brutal. Now, Sherry was in a position, and I've heard of this before with a lot of murder victims. Her arms were extended up in the air. Her legs were bent, almost as if she was fighting to get up at the time of death. And I mean no disrespect here, but it's a strange thing to see with some bodies. Almost like they died mid-movement. Sometimes murder victims still have a look of shock on their face, and this was how Sherry was found. John calls 911 and the ambulance and police arrive. They cordon off the house, which is completely a crime scene now. You guys know what happens next. The husband is brought in to be interviewed. John explained that he was at work and was trying to reach her by phone all day. Now, the detective is a little concerned because at the end of John's workday, instead of rushing home to see why Sherry hadn't answered the phone, he goes to the cleaners and picks up laundry. He stops by the UPS store. It's odd that he was running errands instead of racing home. This raised some eyebrows, and John is most definitely a suspect. He explained that they had no marital issues or anything like that. He wasn't some raging alcoholic with anger issues that would suddenly beat and shoot her. There also wasn't any kind of life insurance policy on Sherry, so there's really no motive here. John would end up getting cleared. He had an office full of staff that vouched he was at work. The cleaner said he was there before and after work. Sherry's time of death was the middle of the day, so we can rule out John. Let's talk about this crime scene. So it definitely looked like there was a fight. Now, Sherry was six foot tall and athletic. I'm sure she fought to the very end. There was stereo equipment stacked up like they were stealing it, along with a VCR. One of the big speakers was knocked over and laying next to her body. It seems as if Sherry walked in on a robbery and it just went wrong. Once she was dead, the burglar took her car and left. One of the sliding glass doors on the upstairs balcony was shattered and there was glass that had fallen and landed in the yard. There was blood on the wall. Sherry's face was battered. It appeared a heavy ceramic vase was thrown at her face, which knocked her down at some point before she was shot. One detective noticed a light-colored blanket that had a bullet hole in it with powder burns. So Sherry had been shot twice, and then the final shot was at point blank. The person had put the blanket between the gun and her and fired. This was likely to quiet the gunshot. They found two bullets in her body during the autopsy. To me, this is personal. Any one of those shots would have killed her instantly, but three shots and one at point blank is kind of overkill at this point. Most times, burglars just want to get your stuff and get out. Another piece of evidence is there was a huge bite mark on Sherry's arm. It seemed as if Sherry managed to get the person in a headlock and he bit her hard on the arm. The bite mark was swabbed for some time down the road when DNA testing would be more advanced and they could use it if needed. The killer wore gloves, so there were no fingerprints around the house. 
The police canvassed the neighborhood and knock on neighbors' doors. No one saw anything out of the ordinary. They heard screaming and fighting earlier coming from the apartment, but minded their business. Great neighbors, huh? This screaming and fighting was likely when Sherry walked in and confronted the burglars in her house. They said Sherry and John were nice people who never bothered a soul. They get to one house and the lady says, wait, I have something. She goes inside and then comes back out carrying a purse. She said some men were working in the area and found a purse in her yard and knocked on the door and gave it to her. Inside the purse was Sherry's driver's license and other things that belonged to her. How her purse ended up in a, neighbor, in a neighbor's yard, we have no idea. The only things stolen were their marriage license and Sherry's BMW. It seems like the robber left in a hurry. A detective tells John that he believed that the front door was unlocked. Sherry was upstairs. Some robbers come inside. Sherry comes downstairs and startled them, and that's when they killed her. John asks why they wouldn't just run. Why did they have to kill her? He says he doesn't know why. Not long after Sherry's murder, something similar happens. Nearby Sherry's house, a woman was coming home, and she noticed her front door was open. She pushed it the rest of the way open, and there is a man in her front entrance stacking up stereo equipment. She screams, and at that moment, she sees another man come out of a room in her house. He points a gun at her. She is screaming her head off and takes off running down the street. She got away. She describes the men to police, and that night, all over the news, the sketches of two Latino men were everywhere. Now we have something to go on with Sherry's case. It seems everything was similar. These two Latino men could have been Sherry's murderers. Just one week after Sherry's murder, a clue pops up. Sherry's BMW was found. It was in a really bad part of the hood, an area known for heavy crime. The weird part is that it still had the keys in it and it was unlocked. Nothing was stolen out of it. It's dusted for fingerprints and nothing out of the ordinary turns up. They did find a strand of dark hair, but that could be John's or hers or one of her friends. Nothing of significance was found to help with the case, and the car is given back to John. Sherry's case grew colder and colder as the months went on, eventually years. It's Los Angeles, and there's murders that happen every day. But Sherry's parents never gave up. They wrote letters. They petitioned to have her case be reexamined. They asked if something could be done with the bite mark swab. The police say they don't have the time or the money to test the DNA, so Sherry's parents offered to pay for it, and they still declined. The thing with DNA testing, especially back in 1986 when it's in its very early stages, you kind of only get one shot with it. Once you use the DNA for a test, that's it. So the longer you wait for technology to advance, the more accurate the results will be. It wouldn't be until 2004 and early 2005, a criminologist for the cold case unit named Jennifer stumbled upon Sherry's file and found it intriguing. The fact that she had a bite mark was pretty big evidence. This is the mid 2000 and technology is taking off quickly. Plus the LAPD had a lot of money now to invest in cold cases. Jennifer needs the vial that contained the swab of Sherry's arm where the bite mark was but it's missing. The evidence room is packed. You got to remember, Sherry was murdered in 1986. There's another 18 years of evidence from other cases in Los Angeles on top of hers. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. The DNA sample was eventually located in a coroner's freezer all the way in the back. This was exciting. 
Jennifer is going to run the sample and hopes and prays she has a match so whoever did this to Sherry can be put away. Jennifer sends it away for testing and doesn't get a match, but she learns something shocking. This DNA sample belongs to a woman. This is huge because for the last 18 years, they've been looking for two Latino men. It's found there was a male-female pair that were robbing people in Los Angeles in the 80s. So they find the woman and she was cleared. I'm not sure how, but I believe she was in jail at the time of Sherry's murder. I can't say for sure, but the woman was cleared. So Jennifer goes to the detective from 18 years ago and lets him know what she found, but he just kind of dismisses it. In 2009, some new detectives who specialize in cold cases take a look at Sherry's file. There's file cabinets filled with cold cases, and hers was just one of them. They want to go through and solve each case one by one to get them off their plate. They see that the DNA evidence showed that the person who killed Sherry was a female, and they find out that back in the 80s, shortly after Sherry was murdered, her father had written a letter to the former detective asking them to investigate one particular person. Now, Sherry didn't have any enemies, so her parents were concerned when she said she had been having some issues with an ex-girlfriend of John's. Her father had given the name of the woman in his letter to the detective, and the name was Stephanie Lazarus. Stephanie was dating John for a bit before he met Sherry. They were previously roommates at UCLA, but he made it clear to Stephanie that he and her were not a couple. They basically just had sex occasionally. That was it. But Stephanie had stronger feelings for John than he had for her. She cherished the nights that they had together and was sad when he would leave in the morning. He was even dating other women at this time, but would still meet Stephanie for sex. He was in his mid-20s and didn't want any kind of commitment. Then he met Sherry and instantly fell in love. He stopped seeing women altogether, including Stephanie, and just focused on his relationship with Sherry. He was happy. John and Sherry were a couple for two years when he asked her to marry him. She said yes, and they were happily engaged. Word gets back to Stephanie somehow that John is now engaged to a nurse named Sherry, and she was devastated. She wrote in her journal how sad she was and couldn't live without him. How could he marry someone else? Stephanie shows up at John's apartment after hearing about his engagement and says she wants to talk to him just to get some kind of closure. He invites her in and the two end up having sex. Afterwards, he's done with her. He doesn't want to be with her. He makes it clear they were never a couple and he's going to marry Sherry. That's where their paths will now end. Stephanie is upset and doesn't want to live without John in her life. She wants to be the one that he's marrying. John and Sherry get married, and Stephanie has shown up to their house a couple times. Once, she knocked on the door, and Sherry answered, and Stephanie says, Hey, is John here? She's in her workout gear. John comes down, and he's friendly to her. Stephanie asks him if he can wax her skis for her. He says he will, and Stephanie brings the skis in. She says her goodbyes and leaves. She comes back to pick them up, and Sherry tells her, okay, you got your little skis waxed. Now you're done with my husband. Stay away from him. Stephanie just kind of smiles and leaves. Sherry and John have an argument about her, and John assured her there was nothing between him and this woman anymore. Another time, Stephanie showed up to Sherry's job and said to her that if she couldn't have John, no one could. This is getting interesting. 
I find it wrong that Sherry's dad gave the police this woman's name right after her murder, but no one checked into it. Now it's 23 years later, and these new detectives are taking this letter serious. Someone is finally listening to what these two grieving parents have been saying this whole time. The previous detectives were so focused on these two Latino men that they never thought it could be anybody else. Her dad even offered $10,000 of his own money to anyone who had any info. He called countless times and asked them to check into a woman named Stephanie who used to date John. So these LAPD detectives know they have to talk to Stephanie Lazarus. There's just one small problem. Stephanie is an LAPD detective. This is going to be weird. How are you going to investigate your fellow officer? She literally works down the hall. The detectives have to be careful and not let word get out. They don't want someone to tip her off. They refer to her as number five. They worked in secret and were careful not leaving a digital trail. So Stephanie is now 51 years old. She is married and her and her husband, who is also an officer, adopted a child. She is known to be a great person and wife. She was a good mom and had been a police officer for years before being promoted to detective. She worked with the D.A.R.E. program in the 80s and the 90s. She doesn't have a single mark on her employee record. No disciplinary strikes. This lady was good and well-respected, an ideal officer. She eventually got another promotion. Now she has like the coolest job ever. She's in charge of art theft crimes and expensive jewelry and items like that for LAPD. Think of movies with art heists. Basically, if Kim Kardashian's house was broken into and someone stole jewelry and some paintings, Stephanie is the detective assigned to the case. It wasn't easy to get this job. She had to be recommended after years of serving as a detective. This is a top-tier position that other detectives strive to get. So she knows how the law works, and she knows her rights, and she knows how investigations work. This wasn't going to be easy. She's higher ranked than the detectives investigating her. They had to get special permission from their bosses to do this, and it involved internal affairs. Everything was in code, so her name didn't accidentally get leaked in the building. Some other things come to light from the day of Sherry's murder, such as Stephanie had off work that day. She also owned a 38 caliber, which is the same kind of gun used to kill Sherry. She reported it missing two weeks after Sherry's murder. These detectives go undercover and see her at a fast food restaurant with her child. They wait till she throws her trash away and leaves. They go in and get the straw and cup she was using and take it to the lab where it will be tested against the swab from Sherry's arm where the bite mark was. The DNA results come back after a few days and it was a perfect match. This decorated LAPD detective Stephanie Lazarus was Sherry's killer. She killed Sherry in a fit of jealous rage and staged the scene to look like a robbery. I hate to sound like a broken record here, but I'm so mad that her parents told police to investigate her all those years ago, and now they have been validated. This woman has been living a great life for the last 23 years and wears a badge of honor to serve and protect the community. The way they're going to get Stephanie in a room to interrogate her took some good thought. I'm honestly shocked at how well they did this. 
They go down to her office and tell her there's an inmate at the jail involved in one of their cases who has some info about a recent art theft. Can she go down and talk with him in an interrogation room? She's like, yeah, sure, let's go. She's very cooperative. This is this is her area. This is what she specializes in. She gets to the jail where she has to surrender her gun before she goes into the room, which is standard procedure. The other detectives do as well. They go down into the interrogation room. You've got Stephanie and two detectives who know Stephanie is the killer. They're waiting on this fictional person to be escorted in to discuss a recent art theft. The reason they brought Stephanie to the jail was they needed her somewhere where she wouldn't have her gun on her in case she decided to flip. Genius move, in my opinion. I watched the recorded video with Stephanie in the room, and it was very satisfying to watch. She has no idea what's about to happen. They wait a few minutes. She says, okay, where's my guy? They say, can you tell us about your relationship with John Rutter back in 1986? She's like, excuse me? Can you tell me what this is about? They ask again, can you tell us about your relationship with John Rutter back in 1986? She says he was an ex-boyfriend. What's happening here? The crazy thing to me is she's used to interrogating suspects. Usually she is the one in the position of power. Getting her to break will be damn near impossible. They tell her they're working on a case involving John and her name came up. But she says they went to UCLA together and kind of had a fling for a bit, but he's not in her life now. She hasn't seen him in over 20 years. What did he do? They said it's about his wife. Did you know her? She says she vaguely remembers her. She, she was murdered, right? Wasn't she a nurse? Shelly? Sherry? What was her name again? They continue to play her, and she's experienced enough to know that they're playing her. She's still trying to be friendly, and she looks bewildered this entire interview. She's trying to laugh with them, like, why the hell are you guys bringing me into this? This is silly. Can I help with the case? What's going on? The detectives don't want this to turn into a confrontation just yet. They kept it friendly. They don't want to pull the, we have your DNA and it's a match to her killer card just yet. Stephanie keeps trying to steer the conversation, saying things similar to, hey, did you hear about Bill in accounting? She tried talking about some of their mutual officer friends. She's doing everything to distance herself from what they're there to discuss with her. Meanwhile, what she doesn't know is while this interview in the jail basement is taking place, there was a search warrant executed on her house, which I'm sure surprised the hell out of her husband. They are looking for any other evidence, even though it's been 23 years. They did find her old journals where she wrote that she couldn't live without John and how upset she was that he was getting married. Stephanie rattles off names of men she dated in her past before she, she married her husband, making sure that John would just seem like a small fraction of her life. She kept saying how it was so many years ago and chuckling. Again, she's distancing herself. She rambles on when they press her about certain things. She's playing forgetful. She says, well, yeah, I remember talking to her once or was it twice? I remember telling her John needed to stay away from me because he was getting married and that would be wrong. They continue to press into more questions like, did you ever have any arguments with Sherry? Did you show up to her job and say, if you couldn't have John, no one would? Stephanie says, what does this have to do with me dating him and her being killed? I don't have anything to do with it. 
Every time Stephanie gets uncomfortable, she referred back to her job, talking to these two men like co-workers in a break room. She played the role of helping her fellow brothers on this case. They played along for a while, but they knew she's lying. One of the detectives tells her, look, it's been 23 years since this case. The police at the time processed this crime scene the best they could with what they had at the time. You know things were harder back then. You've been doing this longer than we have. A lot of people were looked, were looked at in this case. The evidence has finally been processed. Stephanie says, look, if you're thinking I'm a suspect, then I have a big problem with that. Her tone has finally changed. She went from laughing with the boys to very stern. She says, well, if you guys think because Sherry and I had one fight that I'm the one who murdered her, this is crazy. She's fumbling words now. She thanked the detectives and got up to walk out. She only got to the door before they started reading her her Miranda rights and putting handcuffs on her. Stephanie Lazarus was arrested for the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. The detectives call Sherry's parents and they're happy an arrest has been made, but angry it took so long and they had suspected her this entire time. Stephanie was booked into jail and will need to await her trial date. Her trial date wouldn't come for three years, February 2012. This trial is going to get a lot of media attention. Anytime there's a love triangle, people seem fascinated. And the fact that it involved a detective from the LAPD is even more dramatic. Stephanie arrived in court in handcuffs and shackles. A once celebrated officer now appeared like the criminals she used to arrest. The jury was shown photos of the crime scene, Sherry's body in the defensive position and her eyes swollen, blood surrounding her body. The prosecutor says Stephanie killed Sherry in a fit of jealous rage. He said Stephanie was obsessed with her former boyfriend, John, who did not return her feelings. When he told her he was marrying another woman, he said she was driven to vengeance. He said she broke into the townhouse that John shared with Sherry, his new wife, then bludgeoned and shot her to death after a confrontation. Another photo was shown of Sherry on her wedding day. She was wearing this beautiful gown and was smiling. The prosecutor tells the jury that this was the motive for the killing. Stephanie wanted to be the one in that wedding dress marrying John. Stephanie wouldn't look up at the screen while photos from John and Sherry's wedding day were played in court. Stephanie's defense team said that a lot of the evidence, including that DNA sample that was misplaced, had deteriorated over time. He also said Stephanie was wrongly accused and they have the wrong person. He did the same thing Stephanie did during her interrogation, kept referring to how old the case was, how it was so many years ago. There is no statute of limitations on murder. There are on every other crime. You could be charged with murder even 80 years after it happened. One of the witnesses called up was an LAPD police officer. He was one of the first on the scene. He was telling jurors about how distraught John was at the house while they're processing the scene. The defense attorney asked him if just months ago he told prosecutors while they were planning their case against Stephanie that he didn't remember a thing from this case, which he said yes. But he tells the attorney while he's on the stand that he asked for his notes from the case back then and that triggered his memories from that night. Sherry's sister testified about Sherry and John's new marriage. She said how happy they both were. They held hands everywhere they went. They were basically still on their honeymoon. Sherry was over the moon and in love with John, and he was in love with her. They were a happy couple. 
John gave a victim impact statement at her trial. John is much older now, just like Stephanie. He got very emotional talking about his wife of only three months. After her death, he moved out of the house they shared. He eventually remarried and moved out of the city. He felt extreme guilt that now he knows he was the reason behind Sherry's death. She was murdered over him, and she was just an innocent victim. He apologized to Sherry's family. In March 2012, Stephanie Lazarus was convicted of the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. She was sentenced to 27 years to life. She will be in her 80s after 27 years. She filed an appeal but lost. She is currently incarcerated and has been since 2009. She is at the California Institution for Women in Corona, California. I don't know whatever happened to her husband and adopted child. I suppose they have moved on with their lives. Sherry's parents, who are elderly at this point, sued the LAPD, saying that the officer's handling of the case caused them emotional distress, especially investigators' refusal to take their claims about Stephanie serious. They lost, however, because too much time had passed since her death. There's a statute of limitations on everything except murder, like I mentioned earlier. Basically, they waited too long to file the lawsuit. Sherry's father died in 2020 at the age of 86 years old. Her mother died in 2022 at the age of 87. Today, in 2023, Sherry would be 66 years old. She would likely have retired from a long career of nursing. She may have had children or not. She was a great person who was just an innocent victim. Any woman that John would have married would have likely been killed by Stephanie. She wanted to be his wife. Rest in peace to Sherry, and thank you all for joining me, and I'll see you all again soon. Take care, and much love to you all.